Welcome to Back to the Laravel Podcast Season 4. Today we're talking to Chris Fidow about deployments and hosting and about getting your code onto the server. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the Laravel Podcast Season 4, where every single episode is about a single topic. Today we are talking about deployments and basically what it looks like to get your Laravel app up on the server, whatever the server means. And we're talking with Chris Fidow, who is one of the originalist OGs of the Laravel world. You may know him from such hits as, man, shipping Docker and servers for hackers and that one article about hexagonal architecture that he still regrets to this day. Chris, (laughs) if we were in a world where you got to meet people in the grocery store, uh, how would you introduce them to who you are, what you do? All right. So first, I just got tweeted about the Hexagon oh article I gave yesterday, and I'm just like, oh. Anyway, don't do it. Right. In- interesting topic. Not what we're talking about today, yep. but also a waste of time. Don't at <laughs> me. Okay. If I make people at a grocery store, what do I tell them I do? So I just tell people I'm a programmer first, and uh-huh. of course, it goes beyond that. Then there's like, okay, I'm gonna have a web developer. I work with Laravel and PHP yeah. and that kind of thing. But you know, I just start with. I'm, I usually say something like I'm a programmer and I also work with servers. Something oh, like okay. That. That's it's, cool. And like when you start saying the word server administration, like it gets boring enough for like yeah, if they don't like, know okay. about it, they're not going to follow. Over. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what I want. I like that. Like, all right, we're glad. Okay, so to a Laravel programmer, I think that you do have a unique job because for anybody who doesn't know, you work with Ian Landsman, which I feel like Ian is – I've often called Ian the the godfather of, of Laravel, and I think it's right. definitely true. And he's he had stepped away for a little while, but now that he's doing Laracon online, his presence is, is being felt a little bit more. So what is your day-to-day job? All right, so that's at Userscape. We mm-hmm. work on a product, HelpSpot, which is a customer support application. Which is a bit unique in that it's old, like it's pre SaaS days. And then we have a lot of customers who self install on like Windows servers or Linux servers or whatever they happen to have. So there's kind of like a a lot of server components to it because it's not just a SaaS application on our own infrastructure. Yeah. And do you, I've always wanted to ask this of y'all and I never have, do each of you specialize like a little bit on like a different part of the application or is it really all of you all are just kind of jumping around the whole code base? It's both. There has been specialization, and it's kind of grown organically like that. I don't think that was ever like a specifically outlined thing. Like yeah. I, I've gravitated towards the server stuff. Yeah. So now we have HelpSpot Cloud, and that's you know mostly me. Yeah. And then Eric is on a lot of like billing back office stuff plus mm-hmm. HelpSpot. Uh, Matt, we have Matt in our team who does support, but also like is very technical, so he does like some coding and bugs cool. and that kind of thing too. Nice. And just one last thing, just for context. So HelpSpot Cloud. So the original HelpSpot was like software as a service, but then you also could get a version of it that you self-install, right? I mean, it was just a PHP code base. So right. it went whatever. Right? Yeah. So when someone bought it, they downloaded the code base. Oh, so was it only on-premise at first? Yeah, exactly. Oh, okay. So it was originally, and then HelpSpot Cloud is the SaaS. Yeah, but it's not even a SaaS. It's just like everyone gets their own server. Yeah, exactly. So it's just the same thing. So what are you using? What do you, like, what ecosystem are you using to set that up? It's all AWS. We because it's like a small team, right? It's like kind of like I'm the server person. It's yeah, simply it's simple in concept. Mm-hmm. There's like a so it's a server per customer essentially. Yeah, um, because that's simpler than like you know some kind of Dockerized environment that only I understand. And if yeah. it breaks in a way, and I'm like I don't even know because I don't know what like <laughs> Linux networking is. So like, yeah. you know it's just like you know, things can break in weird ways when you get into that world too. 
so it's like 300 individual like application okay. servers right now and, and one huge RDS database that okay. all those customers are on and that kind of thing. Got it. Sweet. Well, I, I could nerd out with you on that all day, but we should talk about the actual topic here, which is deploy deployments, deploying, and what it looks like to do that in the Laravel world. So it's a little bit of a weird one to ask you the five-year-old question, but you got kids, you know this is coming, so let's start <laughs> with it. If you're going to be talking about just deploying web applications in general to a five-year-old, how do you describe it? All right. So first and foremost, the true story is that deployment is why my son knows how to say BS. <laughs> it <was> repeating <laughs> it back to me. <laughs> okay. See, the kids are already involved, so. Right. He's not five yet. He's three, so I I don't even know how I describe it to a three-year-old. But (laughs) I think my really basic explanation is, is like, this is how you make the things I work on available so that everyone in the world can use it. So, and for kids, I think that age is, like, like iPad apps or Netflix or something makes Mm -hmm. the most sense to talk about than web apps. So, it's just, like, if I was working at Netflix and built something in my computer, then, like, I can deploy it so everyone in the world could watch Netflix. I love it. And that's really like deploying is so complex of a topic. There's so many different ways to deploy that really the only thing that makes them consistent is that you're taking it from your local setup to the remote setup, right? Whatever local is, whatever remote is. Yeah, for sure. So since this season of Laro podcast is all about targeting people who are just getting started, I thought we might have this varying kind of experience, background experiences with deploying with serverless or deploying with old school FTP and stuff like that. So let's just say we want to reset and we want to say, what does it look like to deploy a Laravel app from me developing it on my local ecosystem, whatever that is, to getting it up to the most standard way? Obviously, you can do it anyway, but there's a little bit of like sort of a prescribed, here's how to get started. Could you walk us a little bit through that that setup? Yeah, the kind of most... I guess the most common way I see it deployed is just the Forge quick deploy model, right? Git is mm-hmm. on the server. So if you push a new code up to your GitHub repository or whatever, Git, you know, GitLab, whatever, then your server could have a way to know that new code was pushed up there and basically just do a Git pull. So it pulls down that latest code. So the deployment there yeah. is basically because Git uh, is available everywhere, right? You have it locally. It's at a central place like GitHub, and then it's also on your server, so it all has access to the code. And your server can do a Git pull and have the latest code that way, uh, which is the most kind of basic way of putting it because there's a lot of other stuff that goes into it, like building static assets, you know, your JavaScript, or restarting yeah. services if you need to, and that kind of thing. Yeah. And I won't make you kind of give us a walkthrough how Forge works, but for anybody who's not familiar, we'll be kind of referring to that concept, which other people use, right? But Forge is the most common one. And basically in Forge, you connect Forge to your server or you create a server in Forge, and then you add a site in that server. um, And that site is basically anytime somebody requests um, basically an IP address for this particular URL, whether it's a domain name or multiple domain names or whatever, anytime they resolve at this server, they should be served from this one Laravel app, right? And then you connect your that app in Forge with a GitHub repo, and then Forge subscribes to that GitHub repo, yeah. right, to get those pushes. So once it is subscribed, like let's say I do that whole connection, so I point my IP address over to Forge, Forge, I've got a server connected and set up in Forge. It's pointing that IP address. And then I set up a new app for my great mygreatwebsite.com. And then I connect it to my GitHub repo. So now Forge is getting pushes every time I push up to, you know, main or whatever. What happens from there? The first time after I've done all that, I do a local push and I say, git push 
origin mass main, and then all of a sudden Forge runs it. So before I've done any customization or tweaking, what does that actually look like in the Forge world? Like how is it deploying it and what scripts is it running by default and how is that actually making it kind of serve? Uh, a point there is that Forge is actually doing some automation for you. Forge is a thing that is hooked up to your GitHub mm-hmm. account and it receives webhooks from GitHub. We're saying GitHub, but you know, GitLab, Bitbucket, whatever. I'll just keep saying GitHub because it's easier. So Forge is subscribed yeah, to a thing. Yeah. GitHub, it's getting webhooks from GitHub. So Forge is acting on your behalf because it's you know getting these webhooks mm-hmm. from GitHub and it's performing an action there. So there's if you are not using Forge and you have your own setup, then you also need this thing listening for webhooks subscribed to you know changes in your github repository but we'll assume we have yeah. forge right now because that's you know doing it for you you don't have to code that up yourself so it gets a webhook then forge sees that this webhook has come in it's for this repository this repository is connected to a site for some forge customers you know application so your application in this case um, and it knows that it needs to take some action because it sees that like you know it's been pushed to main and main is the branch that is hooked up to this site and then you know, it, it needs to do some action based on a change to the code in that Git repository. Okay, so that's a deployment, yeah. basically, because that's what Forge does, the, the only automated thing that Forge does based on that kind of thing. So it'll kick off a deployment, which in the Forge world means it's going to SSH into your server and just run some scripts. So in Forge, that's configured as uh, what it calls a quick deploy, because it's just like very quickly getting yeah. that webhook and then running a script against on your server. And that'll do a git pull, and it might run a migration, right? You optionally, will run some migrations. Yep. Um, and if there's migrations to run, then it'll run them. Uh, you can optionally add some extra scripts to build static assets if you are building them on your server as opposed mm-hmm. to building them locally and then uh, pushing those up so they're committed into the repository. That's actually one of the first trade-offs you kind of decide in, in deployment scenarios. Like, are you building your static assets locally, and yep. then you have something to push up to get? Or... Is your production server yeah. building the assets? You know, and it, it building assets is npm run production or whatever using yarn run production. So if you're running that yeah. locally and pushing that up, or you're running that on the production server, and then that, then you know you add a little bit of time that it takes for your your deployment to actually yeah. be ready because you still have that extra step fast to running on your server. So you know you push up to get a webhook is sent to Forge. Forge is going to run a script. That script is going to get pulled to get the latest code. It might run npm run production or whatever for static assets. It might run migrations. It probably is going to reload PHP FPM, which is there. So it's you know serve web traffic for, for, uh, through PHP. So it's running your PHP code. And what am I missing? Anything else that it does by default? Default? I think that's it. I mean, you can add lots of other things, but I don't think it does it does anything else by default. It's a bash script. Yeah. So you can just script it's cool because it's it's a bash script that literally, like in the application, edit ed, ed, my application UI in Forge, it shows you that that default one, which includes seeding into the directory, get pull. Like you can you can make it so every time something happens, it doesn't even get pull. I mean, it'd be silly to do, but you could if you wanted, right? It's a right. totally customizable bash script. There's so much going into it too because I'm just thinking about like our uh, applications I run. It also pulls in private keys that it needs for, mm-hmm. you know, APIs to work and, and all sorts of stuff that can happen then. Yeah. And in Forge is simpler because the majority of things that it's doing there, it does not at the deploy step, right? Like when it's when you're setting up your .env and everything, all of like all the kind of stuff it usually tends to do when you're setting up the application or making changes to the application. So I think for us, that's the case. For yours, when you say pulling in API keys, are you like pulling it in from like a centralized AWS secret store? Yeah, exactly. Okay, like- got it. I mean, Forge also manages manages your .env file too, right? So you can edit yeah. it and add secrets to that kind of thing, and that and that automatically just kind of gets placed on your server. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about 
alternative. Well, actually, is there anything else you want to say about that kind of forge way? Because there's other people who have the forge model, right, where you automate it in there. But I think that it's really helpful to talk about that model just because it's so different than like the I choose to push that, that we used to do. Like I choose went up to send things up to SFTP. Mm-hmm. I take the responsibility. So if somebody wanted to build something like forge, like you said, you'd have to build a tool in your server that listens for webhooks, that authenticates against it so it can actually know that it's supposed to get the webhooks, that receives the webhooks, that parses them out to figure out which action should be taken, and then also allows you to configure which actions to take, right? And you could do that on your own. Plenty of people do, but that's what Forge is giving us. Before I move on to the next way of doing it, is there anything else you wanted to say or talk about with the Forge kind of way of doing it? Forge is always a great tool, and that's a great tool for Laravel people because it hides or does a lot of work for you. It hides some, Mm -hmm. some nasty details. And in doing so, you know, really hides some kind of like gross stuff that you have to learn in order to just even just to do that quote unquote simple model. It's quote unquote simple, both because application development, web application development has gotten super complex. Yeah. You know, way more complex than when we started. We were just pushing WordPress PHP files to (laughs) FTP. Yep. Uh, Because now there's, you know, like web workers. So you got to restart your workers if you have key workers running and then. Mm. Maybe you have cached your config, so you got to clear your config cache and, you know, all sorts of stuff you might be doing. Maybe we want to talk about this if we get into gotchas and we can just kind of like table that for now because I could just kind of go into a mini rant about like <laughs> all of like the weird edge things you need to know about just to, just to get like a quote unquote simple deployment to work. Yeah. And let's, let's do that in the gotchas, but we might actually be able to do that in just a second because what I'm realizing is that deploying is... I, I jumped right into the what it takes to deploy it in any given moment, like a change. But you can't deploy something until the application is already set up on the server, right? Mm-hmm. And I do think it's worth us talking about that as well. It should actually, I should have called this hosting and deploying, right? Because like what, let's talk a little bit about what are the things that Forge is doing when I breezed really quickly through it. Let's unbreeze and say, okay, so the first time I spin up a for- server using Forge, it's going to spin up a new Ubuntu server with particular configuration settings that I don't have to learn because Forge does it for me. What type of stuff am I thinking about that aren't there by default on a, an Ubuntu server that Forge or some of the other tools we'll talk about later kind of automatically set up for me. Right, yeah. So deployment really is like where the rubber meets the road because you get into all the like server things that you really wish uh-huh. you didn't have to know, but like all of a sudden yeah. you have to know them because your code is working on the server, but your code deployment process is also making changes on the, on the server and yeah. it has to like yeah. do it in a way that actually works. Almost all of the complexities of that revolve around Linux permissions. Like just so much of it does. So so anyway, Forge is gonna you're gonna give Forge permission to create a server on your account, uh, DigitalOcean, AWS, Vulture, whatever. And it spins up a server and it installs a bunch of stuff on it. So it's installing Nginx and PHP, uh, PHP FPM, which is a little thing that sits between Nginx, the web server, and your application code. It translates a web request into PHP and spins up processes to actually process PHP requests, web requests, whatever. And it configures permissions in a way that is actually not standard to uh, what you get out of the box when you install that stuff yourself manually. Yeah. And this is uh, to help line up permissions to make your life easier. So if you start asking people about best practices, which is like a whole other piece of dogma <laughs> that like, right. you just have to kind of learn to either accept or ignore. Like If you accept it, you're going to be doing a lot of work. And if you ignore it, then you yep. like figure out how to straddle the lines to make it secure, but also not a pain to, uh, yeah. to use something. I'll get into what I mean by that. The best practices for everything is so kind of like, this is again, getting into Linux permissions. Best practices yeah. are to make your stuff, all your processes, your your uh, PHP code and your web server and all that stuff runs as a user that doesn't have permission to do a lot of stuff on the server. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't log in as that user, for example. Um, that user mm-hmm. can't use sudo, that kind of thing. And 
on Ubuntu, you might have seen this user www-data is the default one used for web mm -hmm. stuff. That is the user that's going to run your PHP code. Therefore, that's the user that needs permission to write files like your, your log file, for example, in your in your Laravel application. And out of the box, you know, you can't SSH for login as that user to your server, which means uh, if you run some code on your server, like a bash script on a deployment script, that is probably going to be run as a different user, like user yeah. uh, Ubuntu or uh, if you're on AWS or you know whatever user you create on the server, if you're doing it yourself and not through Forge, which means yeah. that user is not user www data, which means if you do a git pull from that user and new files come in, they're going to be owned by a different user that is not the correct user that is yep. you know, the, the web server is running uh, its processes as. Forge simplifies that by running everything as user Forge. Forge is a user that you can log into. Forge is a user that can use sudo to act as you know user root essentially. But it is also the user that PHP FPM is running as, so your application mm -hmm. runs as user Forge. Um, so all the permissions line up when you're yeah. doing stuff on your server. You log in as user Forge. The user that does the deployment is user Forge. You know, if it creates new files during the deployment by you know Git pull or whatever, the permissions just line up automatically. You don't have to think about it, which is actually a yeah. security trade-off. It's not quote unquote right. best practices to do that, but yeah. it makes your life so much easier that it's actually how I build all of my servers now um, outside okay. of Forge because it's just like yeah. the trade-off is completely acceptable to me. That That's was really long-winded, and also <laughs> Linux permissions <laughs> are terrible. <laughs> they're yeah. not terrible; they're they're nice, but you have to actually understand them. It's just, so it gets to be. One of the things that going to that is makes it very helpful to me is I think that a lot of folks who have not had to do that themselves in the past maybe don't recognize what the benefit and value we're getting from tools like Forge and other similar tools and sometimes leads them to try and do it on their own. Like if you don't understand what the value you're getting, then you might not right. uh, appreciate it. And so I think the biggest thing from that is to say, that's just one tiny, tiny, tiny piece of your managing your own server, right? Like that's just that's just one. And I think the biggest message I would say to new people is you might look at the price of something like Forge um, and just say, oh, I'm not sure if we're going to afford that. Well, there are cheaper options that are more limiting, but I would say that like spinning up your own digital ocean box is not a good use for anybody who does not want to be like a deep level knowledge system administrator, basically. Like we used to have to do that, it was awful. And so we all worked with super, super limited hosts. And when Forge came along and automated this process with full access hosts where we could do everything and yet it still was saving us this, that was that was why Forge blew up so much. Right. Is because you know we have full control over it. It's not the super limited environment. And yet we don't have to know how to set all that up exactly the right way. Yeah, definitely. It's it being your own server on your own account and Forge is just kind of a layer that controls stuff on it is, yeah. is very nice, but also, you know, you have full access to the server. Like you said, it's not like a, a blue host back in the day that you only get user yes. access to cPanel and like limited ability to do anything. Yeah. Yeah. So, so when you set up your whole server, you got all those different things running and Forge does other really nice ones that you may or may not use in yours. You know, you might look for Redis or you might look for Memcached or whatever these things are. Um, but this is not actually a Forge sales pitch. It's really talking about what does it look like to deploy a Laravel app uh, to a server. And so first thing you need to do is permissions is actually one of the most common things that I see when people are trying to host their own Laravel app. So that's I'm really glad you got into that because that is when people don't want to use Forge or whatever, they run into some certain problems pretty consistently. And permissions is really high on that list. There is another just really quick nuance note since we're talking about shared hosting. Some people do use shared hosting for Laravel apps. 
And the number one issue I see with that, I'm sure there's other issues that, that you might be able to bring up, is that a lot of them don't know to correctly point their service or they're not allowed to to the public directory. And so they're instead serving their app out of the root directory, which means that anybody could come along and just type your website.com slash dot env and get access to all of your credentials. Yeah. So if you're tempted to put something like this on shared hosting, be very, very careful. No matter where you are, if you're pointing at yourself, you must point it at the public directory, no matter what. Are there any other notes you would have on shared hosting if anybody's going to end up doing that? Yeah. I mean, many, to my knowledge, don't let you run extra processes like you would to run mm -hmm. a key worker. So you end up with, I mean, I don't know what people do. Maybe they use cron and like you can only have one yeah. one job run every one minute or something. You know, yeah, exactly. I don't know. But that's that's a big limiter because queue jobs, queue workers have been such, have become so mainstream because Laravel makes yeah. them so easy. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. And if you have not used queue workers yet, you may not recognize it, but a lot of the tooling that's built into Laravel, you don't even have to build a queue job for it. You can just mark it as queuable. So you can queue up all your mail, you can queue up all your events or all these things. And it just makes them asynchronous for you. And if you're on a server that already has something like Redis running and you can spin up queue workers really easily, it's basically for free. You're offloading that work to the server for free without it you know, running in parallel or running you know, uh, synchronously with the user's request. But if you find yourself in something like shared hosting, you're now not able to do that. So just be wary of the limitations you're introducing yourself if you choose a uh, an environment like that. But I don't want to go there all day long. So one last thing before we move on to the next type of thing. So that was talking about spinning up the servers, but we also have to spin up a site. Could you talk us just really quickly through what a tool like Forge is doing when I go add new site, mybestwebsite.com? Right. So on the server side, are you thinking? Yep. Okay. Yeah. So just kind of like a site's available and that kind of stuff. Yeah. So it's creating a site, which means uh, there's a few components that have to change on the server. One, Nginx has to know about it, right? Nginx being the web server that's accepting web requests. So it gets a configuration file. That configuration file says with the new site, um, and it's stored out of this directory, which will be the public mm -hmm. directory of, of the application code. So Nginx gets a configuration, and that is almost it because everything else is kind of already pre-configured because um, at yep. that point it's just offloading to PHP FDM, um, except Forge has a newer feature where you can segment every site to be run as its own user, I think. They're segmented. Yep. So it might do some extra configuration there. Like within, in that case, PHP FDM gets uh, its own configuration to have its own little separate set of processes that's run by a different user. Okay. Or I don't even know if they do think users are in Forge. It sounds like they would, but I haven't. Yep. Played with that feature mm -hmm. to see, but that's kind of the typical way to segment the processes. Yeah. So the PHP processes don't intermingle with each other. It's just like one user has this set of processes, this pool of processes to run mm -hmm. one application, and then there's another pool of processes that serve application for your other sites on the same server. And I think that's basically it. So we'll see on the Nginx side because yeah. PHP FDM is just for the most part just running in the back there. It'll just serve a request for whatever it gets. Yeah. So if you if you have a domain name, you have five domain names, and they're all pointed to the same IP address. That means that same server is is its nginx is hitting all of those requests, and it matches each of those requests against one of those configurations that Forge or whatever else spins up. And that configuration says, should this incoming request match against me or not? And that's based on basically what domain name it is. Mm -hmm. And if it does match, then it does all sorts of internal nginx parsing, which you can learn about later if you want. That eventually sends it over to your public slash index.php for that particular app, and then Laravel handles it there. So I think that's what I wanted to handle in terms of the Forge side. I want to talk a little about Envoy and Envoyer, but is there anything else that you wanted to talk about before we kind of jump over? No, I think that's good. As always, okay. there's so many different topics there's you can millions. get into. <laughs> yeah. The problem is there's so many little things we can get to today uh, that this is going to go for three hours right. if we don't I mean, just, just you moving. mentioning like, oh yeah, it's the host header that matters. That's how Nginx matches up to a website. So it knows like which virtual host to connect to and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. like, there's just so many 
levels and details that goes into everything. Yep. Oh, and I bet you that I don't know half the details that are part- peaking in your brain, which is why you're the one here. So please, just ahead of time, go follow Chris on um, Twitter and, and buy all of his courses because they all are freaking brilliant. So let's real quick talk about Envoy and Envoyer. Again, not just to specifically talk about Laravel products, but those are two additional methodologies for thinking about what it looks like to deploy to your server. I think let's start with Envoyer. It's less, I want to talk less about Envoyer and a little bit more about just zero downtime deployment just really briefly. Mm -hmm. So let's say I spun up my server on Forge, but instead of using Forge's auto deploy script, like we're just talking about, I just let it sit there as an empty folder with nothing actually there. And I choose a tool like Envoyer or Capistrano or whatever else to do zero downtime deployments. Could you tell us a little bit about how a zero downtime deployment system works? Yeah. So first and foremost, why Forge Quick Deploy is not zero downtime itself is because when a deployment is kicked off, the script is run, and it's going to do a few things. One is like a git pull, so the code is updated at that point. That's not really instant, but it's close enough to instant that like, it kind of doesn't matter. Yeah. But then also it may like, build static assets, which means there might be a period of time, like 20 seconds between when it starts building your, asset, your assets and when it finishes. So you could have this mismatch where it's serving old assets, like old JavaScript from your previous yeah. commit. Um, and it hasn't caught up to the latest because it hasn't finished building you know, your static assets and that kind of thing. Um, it does a composer install too, right? Oh, so, God, you're right. We didn't even talk about composer. We didn't mention that in the last <laughs> I totally one. Yeah. forgot. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, yeah. So all that's good stuff. Yep. So if you have new packages and stuff, it has to do a composer install, which means people might get errors if yeah. your newest code you know, talk or tries to use code that's not there yet. And then this isn't even getting into like if you have multiple servers that you're deploying to, but let's just table that for now. Yeah. Uh, that's fine. So... That's why it's not a zero down deployment because there's stuff that has to happen and it doesn't all happen instantaneously. So a zero downtime deployment is um, this concept that I think Capistrano is the first way I came across it. And then uh, there are envoyers and using it. It uses symlinks and it uses it in a funny way or not a funny way, but it uses it in a nice way where you can kind of switch from one directory that your application is in to the other one. And it does it atomically so it's quick and correct. And there's any weird situations where you end up serving from two places at once. So that concept is is that your your application is actually in one or more folders and every time you get a deployment it creates a new folder puts the application in there does all the steps that it has to do and once it's finished with all those steps then swaps over so web servers uh web traffic is being served from the new directory for with yeah. your latest code in it um and that's using uh, a symlink so like the symlink um, is like an alias, right? It, it points to one directory, but that's a fake directory. That fake directory is actually pointing to a different location. And you can swap yeah. to what that different location is. So um, if your uh, symlink points to you know, your home directory, forge, uh, whatever, example.app.com slash, what is it, current it uses in, in Encore. Yep. Yeah. So the, the current directory is your symlink, and that symlink is pointing to a real directory that actually exists that has your application code in it and that's named based off like the commit shot or a date or something i forget what the application or the directory name is and then just switches what that current directory points to uh after a deployment is is finished and and the new application code with the new static access and the new composer dependencies and all that stuff is is ready to is present and ready to have web traffic pointed to it yeah that's perfect you got it and uh the only one other little gotcha there just to mention is that if your uh laravel application has certain folders or files for example the env file that you want to be consistent and aren't in the git repo you can put them like at the web root and then tell capistrano or envoy or whatever else to symlink them into each build so every time it deploys a new folder and it's a new copy of this app and it's running npm install and stuff it'll also symlink in your env it'll symlink in your uploads folder or whatever else it ends yeah, up yeah your being. storage directory so, that's your logs yeah, and all 
stuff in it. Exactly. So you have persistence between all of them. Great. All right. And then last, before we move on to the more complex ones like Docker and all that kind of stuff, let's talk about Envoy, which I don't think people talk about very often. And again, Envoy is just a particular instance of this pattern, which to me is having your deploy scripts written in something like Bash, although Envoy is written in Blade, where it's all managed locally. And I know that you did Vapro Bash quite a while ago, which was not this, but it was the same idea, like building a whole bunch of Bash tooling around your your deploy and your local your local environments. But let's talk more about using Bash or Envoy or something like that for deploys. If you were to choose today to not use something like Forge and instead to manually trigger every single one of your deploys to an existing server using something like Envoy, not to be mistaken with Envoyer, what does that kind of process look like? Great. So that is a class of tool that is basically, I think, usually referred to as like a SSH task runner. Oh, that makes sense. So Python Fabric is very similar. And uh, I think Envoy takes, uh, Envoy has taken a lot of ideas from that. (laughs) And it uses PHP and and Blade instead of of Fabric, I think it's called, which is Python, which probably uses Fabric for templates. But I don't even know if it does templated stuff. So it's an SSH task runner. So it will SSH into a server and run tasks. So very much like the Forge Quick Deploy script, it's just like running scripts against a server. And this one, it's run locally, probably, although you you could run it some other places, but it'll SSH into one or more servers and just run the commands that you give it. Um, It uses blades. You can actually template some of it so you can have some elements uh, that are more dynamic. Yeah, like loops and stuff. Yeah, exactly. And and in that case, you can do anything you want. You could do a Capistrano-style deployment, which is actually yeah. something I did. I have a deploy PHP course, and that's what I actually use Fabric in that instead of Envoy. But oh, I, nice. I built up the Capistrano-style things in that course, where it does the the similar thing in the zero-down deployment. So you could do something simpler, where it's just you know get pull and, and compose and install, or you could orchestrate your own zero-down time deployment type script. And in that case, you're just running it whenever you want, uh, as opposed to whenever you push to get. Yeah, and you're saving yourself from having to integrate with GitHub or anything like that, and you can make it a manual thing that you run. But on the other hand, it now somebody every time you want to run the thing, somebody has to go into their server and then type, you know, PHP Envoy or whatever it is, uh, run deploy or run whatever. But the cool, the cool thing about what you just said there is, I love the name because it, it. I've always tried to tell people Envoy is not just for deploys; it's for anything that you want to run on remote servers. So let's say like you find yourself once a week or every time X thing breaks, having to SSH into one server and run the same thing. You can build an Envoy script for that and just say Envoy run whatever, and it's just going to SSH into one server or multiple servers and just run those commands for you, which is cool because it now locks that stuff into the code, right? Because the Envoy configuration is code that can be committed into your repo. Right, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I Now I'm ready to move into the the wide, wide world of stuff outside of there. (laughs) It's a little terrifying. I've got serverless. I've got AWS. I've got Docker. I mean, where do you want to start in these things? Oh where, where would your next kind of description to people about, like, if you're going beyond that world, where do you go? All right. Where do you go? You don't have to containerize everything. In other words, use Docker. Docker mm-hmm. is not simpler, although <laughs> after you do a ton of work, you get to a point where it feels simpler, which is yeah. kind of like, I don't know. Docker, Docker is, um, okay, so actually, let's, let's talk about it this way. If you um, set up some automation so that you build artifacts out of your application and then you deploy Mm -hmm. the artifact, that's another way to go. So what is an artifact? An artifact is like if you have some process where you can do it locally or automated, whatever, it bundles your application uh, Mm -hmm. into something that you could just save somewhere like Amazon S3. It's just like uh, a .zip file maybe. And that .zip file might have all your composer dependencies, might have your production static assets, JavaScript, and CSS. 
and yeah. your application code and all that stuff. And instead of like putting it directly on a server by running git pull or whatever, it's actually just like a zip file that's in S3 or something. And then you have those assets uh, stored and kind of archived and you can pull from any of them that you need. And your deployment script can pull from that as opposed to you know, running mm-hmm. a git pull. So that's like the idea of deploying from an artifact and building an artifact when you deploy. Or you know, at that point, it's not even a deployment. That's just kind of like a build. Yeah. You build a build of your application and then you store it somewhere. Yeah. Um, Docker is another artifact. So your okay. container or your Docker container can have processing in it. Like it can run Nginx and PHP FPM and all this stuff, um, which is typically how you use Docker for local development if you do that. You know, it's, yeah. it's your code is still on your uh, local workstation, you know, your Mac, mm-hmm. your Windows, whatever. Uh, and Docker is just the processes running it, um, which is just a way to kind of segment, you know, server stuff between projects locally. Like, you know, so yeah. you could run Variety B in one project and MySQL in another and they don't conflict. But Docker in production is the idea that is usually espoused is to make it a artifact that has your code built into it. So it might have processes like PHP, FPM, and, and Nginx and all that stuff, but it also has like a, a specific build of your code inside of the container. Right. And then you can have multiple versions of your Docker image. So your image is the thing you build that has that, it, you know, how do you describe images? Images is like a class, and then your Docker container is the instance of the class, right? So you're building yeah. Docker images. You're not building Docker containers. So yep. the artifact is your Docker image, and you have different mm-hmm. tags and different versions of your, your image. And, you know, a lot of one, one example of that is that people usually commit or name a Docker image based off of the commit SHA that was you know mm-hmm. built. So you have a, a mapping of, of a commit SHA on Git or GitHub or whatever to a specific Docker image that has that version of the code in it. And then you right. can deploy your Docker container, your Docker image, um, and run it as a container wherever. Yeah. Kubernetes, Amazon ECS, uh, Docker Swarm thing, uh, a Nomad cluster, just, you know, all the millions of ways that there exists to run Docker. Yeah. Uh, or containers in general, because Docker's isn't even like the container people run anymore. It's just like the runtime. So there's just like a container. Yeah. So I've used Docker locally, and I've got some friends who tell me about how Docker's the future, and you can have the exact same environment running locally and remotely. Should I jump right into Docker in production? Like, who should use Docker in production? There are different ways that Docker is nice, and whether you want to use it in production or not is like whether you can kind of capitalize on the ways that it is nice. One, okay. it is not simpler because you have to learn Docker mm-hmm. on top of everything else. And Docker is uh, basically learning servers, again, because it's, yeah. like, it's still like an Ubuntu-based image. You still have to know how to install stuff and configure stuff. You don't yeah. get away from that. Um, and then there's extra complexities because you have to figure out how Docker networking works. Like you yeah. know, getting web traffic into a Docker container from the outside world is you know its whole other thing. And if you have multiple Docker yeah. containers, because the whole point oftentimes is to like, kind of load balance between containers and different clusters, yeah. you know, different servers inside of a server cluster, then you have mm-hmm. load balancing involved and then like yep. reverse proxies and ones that are very smart and like use key value stores that are, have their own cluster that are served somewhere. Right. And the key value stores know where each uh, instance of the Docker container is run and they can tell the web, uh, the load balancer dynamically how to balance traffic and like what servers uh-huh. they actually live on, the instance of the container live on and like all this stuff, you know, all your, network, service, mesh, you know, whatever keywords you can throw at it exists. <laughs> it's, it's not simpler, except some some services make it simpler. So like Amazon ECS is fairly simple. You can you can use their serverless mode version of it and and get a container running up fairly quickly, except you know there's so many options there, even that gets confusing. 
So the nice part about Docker is that it is a self-contained thing that you can serve out of anything that can run a container. So the yeah. underlying server operating system matters less. The mm-hmm. other thing that matters is that it has some kind of runtime that can run a container. And then deployment also becomes a little bit nicer because you have to have a process that automates the building of the Docker image, right? right. The artifact, we were calling it. Yeah. But then once you have that artifact, then deployment becomes a little bit nicer in many situations because you just kind of replace uh, one Docker image with another. You don't have to, you no right. longer have to worry about the orchestration of like where the, like NPM run production is is happening, yeah. like that kind of thing. It's sort of like that Capistrano flow, but instead of for just your code, it's for your entire like server ecosystem. Yeah, and it happens ahead of time somewhere, and it's not done. Yeah. Like you're not like exactly. that step is already done, so it's not necessarily part of your deploy process. That's like you know the the yeah. building of your your application, and that might be done separately from deployment. Yeah. So you have the option then of saying like, okay, this has been ready and built for a week and it's been tested, but now we can actually deploy yeah. it. That's cool. Yeah. And it's, and like you said, it's, you're not just testing the code. You didn't just build the code. It's actually the entire thing that has been tested because you're running that same Docker locally, that same Docker image. You built an uh, uh, artifact, you built an instance of it locally, tested it all locally, and it's being running on this. It's when it runs in production, it's the same image running in the same kind of like architecture basically so you're you probably have the, the closest local production parity of any of the systems right yeah certainly is closer not always exact but definitely yeah. you know, usually closer and the ways i've seen it not being exactly the same is like locally i'll have x debugged enabled or something and, and right. in production you don't but you can also build your image in a way that it gets disabled in production so it's like still the exact Got same it. docker okay. image if you want to but you know sometimes okay. there's, sometimes there's differences i think like the the dream of docker is like what kind of what Kubernetes is trying to be, which is um, mm-hmm. you have some YAML files in your code and you have the infrastructure's code and that describes everything and then you push that up and then that just kind of magically happens. Yeah. But between those two things happening is so much complication. Uh-huh. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And simplifying it is that there are services that do Kubernetes for you, like DigitalOcean's or uh, Google Clouds or EKS, which is Amazon's uh, Kubernetes cluster stuff. But even then, it, like there's still a lot of knowledge about how about what Kubernetes is doing so to really yeah. understand like what your YAML files are telling it to do. But at the end of that, you could potentially have like your own little Heroku where you just push up code and it just runs somewhere and it's magic. Right. Um, but yeah. that's very complicated complicated to get to. And I've only really heard about that being done in kind of like teams, team environments, yeah. not like small teams, yeah. but like kind of medium to large teams. Yeah. Yeah. It seems to me like Kubernetes and even Docker in production in any shape makes a lot more sense when you've got teams, when you've got... DevOps people or ops people, or it's their sole job to think about these types of things. Yes, It's not the type of thing where I think, hey, we're a startup with three people or five people, or hey, I'm a solo developer or Mm -hmm. anything like that. It's just kind of like the work. The benefit is beautiful and we can all see the benefit, but the cost seems to be something that's not necessarily going to be paid well on smaller projects, smaller teams, individuals or anything like that. Right. I mean, you can't, if you're, if you're, up to the point where making a Docker image isn't like a scary thing and like it makes sense to you, then like maybe Amazon yeah. ECS with like the serverless version of it mm-hmm. is easier to, to get sub and up and running because that's yeah. fairly easy. But that's all relative because like that also assumes some knowledge of AWS, which is like a, right. a yeah. whole other <laughs> How <laughs> so easy is anything easier, in AWS? Right? Exactly. Yeah. Right. And there's probably at least one or two people listening to this who who have learned all these things. And I think one of the things I would note for anybody who are those people and who aren't those people is that two people who have learned everything it takes for Docker 
Docker seems really simple because there's a lot less work that you're doing once you've learned it than you would in other systems, right? It does automate certain things. However, I think a lot of folks who have learned Docker really well have forgotten the learning curve or haven't actually run into the full learning curve. It's that same thing where somebody's new at something and so they tell everybody about how amazing it is, but not actually having fully yeah, encountered all of the, the drawbacks. My best years of like doing service or hackers type content of teaching people were all, are all behind me because like now yes. I have so much assumed knowledge that I just don't remember that I don't that I didn't know it. Well, you just know. Like, uh-huh. like I can never I can never teach programming to someone who hasn't done programming before because I just like yeah. can't get in the beginner's mind anymore. So programming yep. and like, you know, basic server stuff is just I don't know. I don't remember so what I like didn't know anymore. Yeah. And it's I found that to be the case with a lot of Docker people. They just say, I don't understand why you wouldn't recommend making your own Docker Compose file for this. And I just say that's, you know, that's Docker is wonderful. I built a tool around Docker. You built courses around Docker, but it is important to know that for newcomers, Docker in production, I'm just going to say my official opinion is if you are a newcomer, if you are not on a team, if you're a solar programmer, if you're a start young startup or something like that, Docker in production is not for you. Sorry to anybody who that offends, but it's a wonderful tool that is a lot of cost. And Chris didn't say that. He didn't give me a thumbs up when I said that, but I'm going to say that's my official opinion. But I do think that there's something that gives us a lot of this value that is becoming more approachable because of Vapor. So can we talk a little bit about serverless? And I don't know how much of a serverless guy you are, but I know that you at least understand the concept. Could you just give me like a real quick introduction to what serverless is and what it's like to use it with Vapor? Mm -hmm. So the general idea of serverless, like the joke people say is that it's someone else's servers and not yours, which is absolutely true. (laughs) Yeah, it's not serverless. It's technically correct. You are paying a premium to not have to worry about the server. Inside of AWS, which is Amazon Web Services, which is kind of like the one of the larger kind of service serverless places, places that provide serverless uh, services. I'm just going to keep saying the word service <laughs> and server and services uh-huh. all over again. That looks like a few different things. The mm-hmm. main thing that everyone was think, thinking of as serverless, especially in terms of Vapor, is uh, Lambda, which is mm-hmm. just running a function in the cloud, uh, essentially, and it just runs inside of a thing, and you don't have to care about where that thing is. It's mm-hmm. serverless because that's not a server. It's like the way it is presented to you is that you write code and it all, it all executes inside one function and yeah. it just runs and finishes and tells you the result. But then you can stack on other tools to make it more complicated and more useful. So you stack on API Gateway. API Gateway mm-hmm. in AWS is a thing that just accepts uh, web requests, HTTP predominantly, but others as well, and then does something with that web request. That something might be God, I don't know. Oh, it might just go right to a different EC2 server, a different server, right? Yeah. It might go to and just make like a job in SQS, which is a queue job. It might like save a file to S3, so and, or it yeah. might fire off a Lambda function, you know, a serverless yeah. Lambda function. So what Laravel Vapor is doing is that it sets up an API gateway for you. If you have a domain like my my example.org, whatever, that mm-hmm. gets pointed to AWS, uh, its API gateway. So API mm-hmm. gateway is accepting the web request. API gateway is going to spin up a Lambda function for every web request it gets. And then Laravel has done fancy things with Lambda so that it can run an entire Laravel application inside of that uh, function call that gets that gets yeah. run. I call it a function call because it's literally given to you as like, you know, give us this bit of Python or JavaScript or Golang or something, and it's just going to run um, it's going to call this one specific method, and then you do inside yeah. of that method whatever you want. Within Lambda, you can build your own custom runtime. So Taylor has built a PHP runtime within Lambda, so it's, it's running actual PHP code in there. And that spins up a Lambda thing, and then it, and when it's done, the Lambda goes away, and then it will essentially handle you know quote-unquote unlimited traffic. 
because yeah. AWS's ability to to handle that traffic and, and run a Lambda function every time it gets a web request um, is you know vast. It has a lot of capacity, not infinite, yeah. but certainly lots. Which is why you also need to control your costs by like uh, limiting how many concurrent Lambda functions can get called at a time and that kind of thing. So if, if someone yeah. decides to de- attempt to DDoS you and run your bill up hugely, they could, uh, except for those concurrent- concurrency controls that you put in place. Yeah. Yeah, because normally your your uh, cost in a DDoS is limited because at some point the DDoS just takes your server down. Right. But in Lambda, just keep scaling and scaling mm-hmm. and scaling as do your costs. Right. Okay, so the magic of Vapor is even more magical than Ubuntu because I don't think a lot of us are building our own uh, PHP runtimes. And a lot of people for the longest time just said it wasn't possible to run an application stack like uh, Laravel in Lambda, in part because Lambda seems to be more around functions. Like you said, like it's literally called a Lambda function. Right, you yeah. are sending it what the idea, like the idea it would be like, hey, I'm going to go write a, a single function in JavaScript or something like that. And that single function in JavaScript has something that I want to do as like almost like a worker, right? Like I want to pass an input and an upload, and then I wanted to do some work on it and spit out the thing. But Taylor was actually getting to the point where your entire application is kind of crammed down into that function. Right. So this is not the type of thing that we're doing on our own, right? If you want to do something like this with Laravel, you're basically going to use Vapor or similar similar tool. Uh, Outside of like Laravel Vapor, the most the other ways I've seen Lambda talks about the most in like uh, DevOps slacks and stuff I manage just like to use it as part of a tool chain to like get some tasks mm-hmm. done by like processing some bit of data that comes there's or yeah. you know, like workers or a queue job, a queue worker, as you said. I haven't seen many people talk about serving a real entire application out of it, except for maybe specific API endpoints, like just a few. Yeah. Laravel is and Forge, like it's it's been done, but Laravel and, and Vapor specifically is definitely like doing this kind of special thing of writing your yeah. of getting an entire application into it. Although Lambda just came out with the ability to run containers within it, which Vapor can do now. And I, I don't know for sure because I haven't done this whole process myself, but I think that makes it a little simpler because if you can build a Docker container, then you can kind of like get that PHP runtime in place without having to go through the, the hoops Got that you it. had to before. Yeah. Okay. So we are at 50 minutes already. So we have talked about Forge. We've talked about what deployments are. We've talked about Forge. We've talked about basic Ubuntu um, server and site setup. We've talked about um, SSH tax runners. We've talked about zero downtime deploys. We've talked about Docker in production. We've talked about Kubernetes. <laughs> We've talked about serverless and, and Vapor. Before we actually get into what I hope to be, you know, leak a decent uh, amount of just like tips and gotchas, are there any other kind of ways that you think we should address that people are often thinking about or doing deploy? and hosting for Laravel that we haven't covered. Yep. Of course. There's too much to know. Yeah. There must be something we missed. We probably missed seven different options. We talked about permissions. Permissions is the biggest thing. That still Mm -hmm. like sticks out in my head as like a huge thing. There's um, file permissions. So like, and then there's file permissions, like who owns the Mm -hmm. file and and who can do what to the file. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's process permissions. So like PHP FPM uh, needs to be able to write to your files. Also, if you're PHP code is ready to files like your, your log file that Laravel creates. Yeah. Um, then there's other things like restarting services, which usually requires mm-hmm. sudo. So you can do sudo service PHP FPM reload, which you might do if you have like Zend opcache enabled. Um, yeah. And that's something Forge actually does uh, for you as well, but it sets mm-hmm. up sudo in a way that it doesn't get prompted for a password so that you can actually automate that. Um, yeah. using what's called a sudoers file. It, it defines who can run sudo and how. So it's not just magic that your root user uh, can do anything and then your yeah. uh, forge user can use a, um, sudo. 
The Forge user can use sudo when it needs a password, but you can tell it to not need a password for any sudo command. Or you can say you don't need a password to use sudo for specific commands, um, which is what Forge sets up for you. So you can say like PHP FPM reload without using sudo. But you might need sudo. I'm sorry, without needing a password. Need a password yeah. But you might need a password to do like PHP FPM stop. Like it gets pretty Got granular. Okay. So the sudoers is the other thing I have in my notes here that we didn't really talk about there. We talked about web workers, which is the thing you can set up. You need a you need another program to monitor the pro, the worker processes so that they don't die and just stop. So that's usually yeah. a program called Supervisor, although there are others. Um, so you can install Supervisor and configure it, which is again a thing for it to do for you, and tell it to monitor your queue worker. So if your queue worker stops, it'll restart it. Yep. Cron is always a thing. I think everyone's kind of familiar with Cron because that's always been given to you by even like cPanel type hosting yeah. to yeah. run periodic tests. We talked about making artifacts instead of just doing like a git pull immediately. Um, we didn't really talk about deploying to multiple servers. Yeah. Um, which is a whole other huge topic. <laughs> but like the, the TLDR of it is that you have to pick your trade-offs of downtime mm-hmm. versus uh, what, what you do. So like you could spin up an entire new cluster of, of multiple web servers and get your latest traffic on that and then switch over mm-hmm. from the old cluster to the new cluster mm-hmm. or you could kind of just like run git pull on every server consecutively mm-hmm. so that you have you could get into weird states with your code where one server has one bit of code and the other server has the newer code or you could kind of try to do it as concurrently as possible although you can still get into like weird conditions where like where you know they're hosting different things and any of those are valid like for example uh one application i work on at work that's not help spot it's um thermostat just an nps mm-hmm. survey app our deployment process is kicked off from continuous deployment, mm-hmm. you know, a, a CI pipeline, and it will one at a time update the servers. And we found that that is acceptable at the level of traffic that, that it gets. It's, it hasn't been nice. an issue where like one application server had one version of the code and the other didn't, yeah. and that caused errors. So like it's it's totally valid to do that kind of thing because it's simpler to to reason about. Uh-huh. But you know, when you have multiple servers, you have to care about a lot of other things you know it's way more complex than one server so you know typically that needs a load balancer and caring about all the different things like your database can't be just on one server anymore it has to be centralized on its own different location same thing with metas anything with state that's kind of besides the point but in terms of deployment you have to figure out how you want to deploy and like what's important to you like zero downtime versus a quick deployment versus a slower Mm -hmm. deployment cycle and if it's slower then do you deploy automatically or does someone have to push a button to deploy because then like if it takes 20 minutes to deploy, then you can't just deploy every time push, someone pushes to Git, because that could be happening yep. multiple times, you know, yeah. a minute. Yeah. So yeah. multiple servers is a whole other kind of ballgame that you have to figure out. So if I've got maybe a simpler multiple server setup, one of the things that Envoyer lets you do is say, um, which, which of your servers receive deployments of this? So let's say I had three servers. They're all in DigitalOcean. They're all using DigitalOcean's load balancer, which makes things pretty simple. Like you don't have to be like a super genius to do that, but it is, it's still tough. But I could do it, and that's that says a lot. So <laughs> one of the things it lets you do is pick which servers are getting which commands. Are there any kind of like tips or gotchas in terms of recognizing the fact that most things you're going to want to run on every server, but like you might not want to run PHP artisan migrate on every server because then it might be trying to migrate the same database three times, which again, Laravel doesn't care that much. But like, are there any other things we should be thinking about if we have that kind of multi-server setup about just things that should be done once or is it most of it all stuff that happens on every server? Yeah, that's interesting. Migrations especially like probably will work out because Laravel tracks which migrations are run so it won't run the same one yeah. twice except if you're running concurrently then maybe you get into a weird condition where maybe the Weird-based database hasn't yeah. realized that like it's getting yeah. run twice. So running that in one server is, is kind of a good idea. 
but anything else there is very dependent on kind of your setup. So I don't know if I yeah, can say okay. certainly, but like, you know, anything working currency matters. So anything against the database, because your database is probably in one separate location that's not separately in each server, right? Because you want your yeah, data to uh-huh. be in one place. And anything that touches state is going to have the potential to be an issue like that. Mm-hmm. So anything pushed to like S3, so um, anything in your database, anything in your Redis, uh, yeah. or just cache, anything like that. State is yeah. where... Um, state is where things get complicated state being your data yeah. right so if yeah. you have if you have multiple servers and a load balancer you probably are not saving any kind of states to your web servers the application servers right. you're probably storing it in a centralized database in a centralized register store in a centralized you know s3 type yeah. file store and then in that case that's where you have to care about concurrency which one's doing a what or whatever okay We've done so many things right now that both you and, and the listeners are like, kind of like, oh my God, there's so much. And there is so much, right? This is why you have so many courses. This is why there's so many different things here. But let's let's recap real quick. So if you're just getting started, we would definitely recommend, I would recommend considering starting with Laravel Forge. I wouldn't recommend, the more complex things, like to me, it's it's always about like a Yagni, which is you ain't going to need it, and KISS, keep it, keep it simple, stupid. Like those are so valuable for so many aspects of our programming. I think it applies in DevOps as well. Use what, like a lot of people are like saying, hey, we're a brand new startup and we don't have any traffic right now. Do we need, you know, 17 auto scaling, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, no, like throw up a thing on, on Forge. And like, now granted, every once in a while we do get a client who says, because of a big marketing campaign, we're going to go to zero from zero to three million on day one. Okay. Well, we can talk about it then. But usually when they do that, they've already got their own teams working on it. And if not, that might be a time for you to start saying, we need some dedicated time purely to figure out this hosting situation. But for the average Laravel project, throwing something up on a one or two or three or five or eight gigabyte DigitalOcean server on Forge has been more than enough because PHP is super performant. You know, MySQL, especially with some caching, is super performant if you write your queries well. Laravel is super performant. And so the likelihood you actually need a lot of these complexities for performance reasons is actually pretty low. So it's more like it makes sense to do what makes the most sense for your team's makeup, right? Like what are, like, do you have a massively complex team where deploys are really difficult because you've got seven to 15 different people and it's in six different environments, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Maybe you need a complex deploy system. Are you one programmer pushing something up so that your, you know, 600 clients can use it? Don't do all that stuff. Right, Just throw absolutely. it up and forge and get back to programming, right? It's all very so it's kind of like your needs. And if you're not exactly. sure what those are, then you probably like you might not have those needs. So like the simplest That's great. is the best. Like and really if you want something that you're worried about, like getting all that web traffic, then you can pay forty bucks a month instead of fifteen bucks a month and go to Vapor. Mm-hmm. And then you have the extra cost, like AWS cost extra and all that stuff. But if you're worried about having a campaign of millions of people come in, but you haven't, but you're just right now on a single digital ocean server, then like moving to vapor is kind of the next easiest thing. You're not managing yep. stuff, but you can handle that traffic. Yep. And if you want to upgrade Forge, and that's not your your reason to upgrade Forge, but it's more along the lines of like zero downtime deploy and that kind of stuff for multiple servers, Envoy is a really nice kind of like upgrade to Forge. So you do Forge and then you move to Envoy where you need zero downtime deploys when you need more than one server. I think that's the same thing to me. So like the really big question for me about do I upgrade and start using Envoy or do I upgrade and start using Vapor really is just around that question of like, well, why am I upgrading? Just like you said, right? Like it's about your needs. Like why am I upgrading? Am I upgrading because I want to run exactly the same way and I just have the need for completely flexible scale or do I just need to bump it up to two servers? Do I am I getting complaints because the deploys are, you know, introducing four minutes of composer errors and we can't have that and we need zero dot time deploys or whatever. Okay. So you are the 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 deployment guru. If everybody walked away from this having heard all the things we've said, is there one thing that you wish we had talked about that you just say, oh man, everyone gets stuck on this, or if only everybody knew this, this is the one thing that I wish they all knew that we haven't got a chance to talk about yet. No. 
the big thing that okay. always sticks out in my head is permissions. Just yeah. Linux permissions. Figure that out yeah. and understand that. <laughs> and like, is there uh, any really good resource you know about learning about that, or is, should, should I just Google and find some good links? No, I have stuff on servers or hackers specifically okay. because I haven't found a good resource. So maybe um, some articles I have on it there are okay. a good place to start. Um, right. I'll yeah. try to get those links in the show notes for you then. Cool. All right. So normally I end up by asking, is there anything else we haven't covered? And then are there any other really good resources? So I'm just going to start out with your resources. Servers for Hackers and literally any course that Chris has ever done is absolutely fantastic. We'll put a link to every single one of them in the show notes. It's all really good stuff. The people at Titan, we all use it at various times. And our most server-minded people are the biggest fans of Chris, which which tells you something. It's not the opposite way around. So, But other than your own resources, are there any places you would turn people to go for learning about just this kind of stuff in general? I am in a few different DevOps slacks that are kind of public. You can kind of find them and uh, get into them. And I ask people questions there all the time. And a lot of people okay. are super helpful. So that's a very good place. Nice. And then there's like the Laravel Discord that has a servers area and that kind of thing too. Googling around is still your best bet. You'll often land up on a DigitalOcean article. Mm -hmm. DigitalOcean's resources are really good. And I've just started in the last year doing that trick on like Udemy and that kind of thing where you go into safe private browser mode and they only charge you like 11 bucks for a course instead of 150. So like, <laughs> so that's a good trick to, <laughs> to get cheaper courses in that Udemy and that kind of thing. And that's, nice. and I've done that a few times to pick up kind of knowledge about specific topics. Um, like I found a few good courses on uh, gRPC. I'm not going to get into what it is. <laughs> okay, cool. It's not you a, learned so we don't have to. It's not a server thing. It's like, I mean, okay. it is, but it's, it's more of a uh, programmer thing than server, so we don't have to get into it. But like that was just mm -hmm. one example of what I did. I also did that for Kubernetes, but then got into two videos and then realized it was old and Kubernetes had moved beyond wow. it already. And that was frustrating. Oof. And then that's as far as we got <laughs> learning Kubernetes. <laughs> got it. Okay. And I mean, people almost always reference the Laravel docs, but I don't think the docs talk all that much about deploying because it's just one of these like, yeah, there's so many options here. So I go definitely check out the docs, but I don't think it's something it talks about as much. Um, the note about DigitalOcean is really good. DigitalOcean, whether or not you're using them as a server, they pay people to just write great posts for people doing server stuff, whether or not it's actually about how to do it on DigitalOcean. So if you end up seeing a DigitalOcean result in your search and you say, oh, well, I'm not on DigitalOcean, don't worry about it. It's usually just good stuff, period. It's yeah. not good stuff tailored for DigitalOcean. And of course, they're doing that to earn goodwill with us, which is doing the job. But just note that you don't have to skip it just because you're not using them as a host. For sure. All right, Chris. So for the longest time, everybody in the entire world knew you by one picture. Mm -hmm. And it was the one picture with you looking down with a blue beanie. Was it blue, I think, or blue or green? I don't remember. And it's not, is that still you? Yeah. Is that still you? It's not changing. <laughs> oh, it's still you. Okay. So I don't have I, the original you know, image, so I can never go I, back to it. I don't have the hat <laughs> anymore, so I can't make a new photo. Oh, no. It's a great it's a gray one. <laughs> and you look like a completely different person. Every time somebody sees you in person, they're like, oh, that's not what I expected at all. So, of course, all these fun moments are often about very meaningful and significant things about people's lives. I just want to know, is there a story behind that beanie? Do, do, you, do you love it? Do you still have it? Do you remember where you got it from? Do you know anything about that beanie? I lost that hat so long ago. Oh, no. What I really hate <laughs> is that um, I think I lost it in a coffee shop because I saw uh -huh. the guy working at the coffee shop like wear the exact same hat. I was like, oh, I have no. But then like two weeks later, I realized I had lost the hat. So I think he, and like, you think it was him. Maybe. I don't know. Who else has the hat? So I've tried to find Frank it. Frank and Barista. EBay, stuff. Yeah. I find it. It was like a banana. Do you know what brand it was? It was a Banana Republic. Banana Republic? Random hat. I don't even know how I came across it. <laughs> And you like you must have been in your twenties in that picture, right? Yeah, like that's, that's yeah. a while ago. I was okay. working at my uh, at uh, my first job. I'm only in my second job, which is funny uh -huh. too. It's awesome. <laughs> but uh, yeah, how old was I? Twenty four, twenty five. 
something like that. Just a baby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nice. Well, that was it. I just I wanted to hear if there's any story behind that. No, it's no story. Or, I took the picture. I added a, a filter on it, and that was around the time that I made the Fidelper account too, because I had an old Twitter account that was like my other name that I used to use for stuff. Got um, it. And it's been that picture, and I just kept with it. Mostly, I've kept with it because of Ian. Ian was like, "You had a brand or whatever," so you know, brand. And I was like, "You're right. I guess I can't change it now." Which is funny. I also have never heard Ian call you Chris once. No. He always calls you Fidel. <laughs> like true. no matter what. So I love it. Well, anything else you want to chat about before we're done for today? I don't think so. This topic is broad and deep, and it just gets so complicated. And like, like yeah. a lot of the stuff we talked about, I'm also afraid we went through stuff like way too quickly. It's just so yeah, some stuff can get yeah. too deep. But I think the good thing is that like it was a really good intro to the the entry level stuff, and that's what I wanted. And then touching your toe and a whole bunch of other things. So if anybody's sitting out there, well, actually, in Chris, uh, first of all, I'm sure you can hit him up on Twitter. But second of all, he knows the things. <laughs> He's trying to give us a nice short version. But I think that the, the my target market here is people who are new, and I know that people who are new are going to appreciate both the robust introduction you gave us to things like Forge and servers and Linux permissions, and then also just the kind of quick intro to all the other things, and hopefully the note to say, don't worry about those right now. So right. I really appreciate you for everything you teach us all all the time and for you spending time with me today to, to share with everybody all right sounds good happy to thanks man and see you all next time 